Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. As I said, we're in Joel. Gave you time to get there. You had plenty of time. Joel is the second of the minor prophets uh, that is found in the Bible. Um, But the minor prophets aren't necessarily listed chronologically. All right. And so there we don't really know a ton about the book, the person and the book of Joel. Um, but the, the general estimate is that he taught, he spoke, he taught, he ministered sometime around 850 BC, which would put him as one of the earliest of the minor prophets. We also know that his ministry was primarily to the Southern tribe, which, uh, is what we call the kingdom of Judah, um, or the Southern kingdom, um, which is primarily the tribe of Judah. Uh, and so, uh, our friend Joel here, notice chapter one, verse one, we're going to jump right in. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us who wrote it. Uh, and it says this, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Uh, or we can call him Joel if you want to, and you're a Sixers fan. Uh, then you make that connection there. Um, but a little more than that is given. We know his name. We know his dad's name. His name means something to the effect of uh, God is Jehovah. Uh, and his, his dad's name means something like the wisdom of Jehovah. Uh, and that's pretty much all we have about him. It is quite possible that the Lord spoke into his heart in this particular instance, and that's it. And he was off the scene, so to speak, as a prophet. Um, unusual for some of the prophetic books, they will often say something like, these are the words of Joel who ministered during the time of King so-and-so. And then we can immediately say, all right, well, we know when King so-and-so was there, and so we can figure out when Joel was. It doesn't say anything like that. Sometimes you read the prophets and it says, you know, this occurred during the, the great earthquake that occurred. And we know when that particular event was, and so we can narrow it down. We don't know much about Joel. Uh, when he came on the scene, what he spoke to, we do know that there was a catastrophic event that hit the land of Israel that sort of uh, propelled him to speak, that God used that event and kind of spoke into Joel's heart. And from that event, we have the book that we have here. And so uh, with that, we're going to start jumping in. One other point here, there's basically two sections to this book, and we're going to try to study this book together in those two sections. Two studies. Don't miss a week, this week or next, because you've missed half the book. Um, But we're going to try and make our way through Joel in two weeks. The first section, part one, runs from chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two, verse 17. And it's going to look at an unprecedented attack in Israel, an invasion of locusts that came into the land. Now, that freaks me out. Bugs freak me out. Rodents freak me out. And so I was a little, you know, freaked out um, studying this particular passage and research. Do, do bugs really do this? Locusts really? And then seeing pictures and stuff. It was a rough week for me. Um, part two picks up in verse 18, and it goes to the end of, of chapter 3, which is about 20 verses or so in chapter 3 as well. And that, there's going to be this transition from the events of the locusts that are in front of Joel to Joel's application, where essentially Joel's going to do this. He's going to say, you see these locusts and what they've done? You see how they've impacted the land? And everyone's like, yeah. He'll even ask the question, old people, he says, has anything like this ever occurred in your day? And they're going to say no. And he's going to say that's nothing compared to the great and terrible day of the Lord which is going to come. And so he's going to make his application. That'll be the second half of the book, and we'll get to that when we can. So what is his conclusion? I'll give it to you now. Joel's conclusion is this, that these people that he's writing to, you and I, that we should let the events of this locust invasion that's in front of the people 
serve as a warning to them of the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is coming uh, sometime into the future. And Joel's going to, that's the theme, one of the themes of Joel, or it really is the theme of the book of Joel, is the day of the Lord. That's a term you may be familiar with. It's a term you may have heard of. It's a term that's used throughout the Bible. Joel uses the term, the day of the Lord, the phrase, the day of the Lord. Joel uses it five times. And so look down at verse 15 of chapter 1, and you'll notice there, this is the first time that it appears in the book. It says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, he comes. And then he'll go from there, and in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 11, and in chapter 2, verse 31, and then one more time in chapter 3, he keeps coming back to this point about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a phrase similar to the term Armageddon. And so you're familiar with the term Armageddon. You guys are biblically, most of us here are biblically literate people. We know that it's in the Bible. But you also know, and so it refers to a specific day, but you also know that it's a term we use a lot in our society to describe any catastrophic event that is coming against us. So a two-inch storm is about to hit New Jersey, and it's now become Snowmageddon. And oh my goodness, Snowmageddon, nonstop news. Or, you know, the grocery store has run out of a particular thing, and it's like Armageddon has hit the local grocery store. And so we use it to describe other things, but yet we know that it's in, this, in the Bible, it's referring to a specific event. And similarly with the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord does reference a specific event or series of events, but it's also used in the scriptures to describe any time that the Lord is, if you will, directly intervening into the affairs of men. John Walvoord, who's what used to be out of uh, what is now Karen University and Dallas Theological Seminary, um, he's written a really helpful resource on prophecy. And it's called the Handbook of Bible Prophecy. And that book, he defines the day of the Lord this way. He says, any period of time in which God directly deals with the human situation, either through judgment or mercy. That that would be, if you will, on a grand scale, the day of the Lord. But typically, most folks that are referring to the day of the Lord are referring to the last day's events at the end of things. They're referring to things like the book of Revelation. And the day of the Lord technically would encompass everything from the rapture of God's church including the Great Tribulation and the Millennium. And again, going back to that definition, any period of time in which God directly deals with the human situation, either through judgment or mercy. Most specifically, just to get to the point, most people are thinking of the Great Tribulation. Things that we read about in the book of Revelation and in other places. And as I said now, the occasion for the book's delivery is this locust plague which made it look like the land of Israel had gone through the Great Tribulation. Look down, if you will, to chapter 2, verse 3 for me, just real quick. Chapter 2, 3, it says this, Fire devours before them and behind them a flame that burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before these locusts comes in, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. And so they've destroyed the land in its totality. Now, I'll tell you this, because I just think it's fair. I'm the one speaking. You should probably hear both sides of things a little bit. Um, There is some debate as to whether or not these are, this is an actual invasion of locusts, or if the locust stands for sort of a foreign army that has come in and invaded, 
and destroyed the land. I lean toward uh, sort of it's a, it's a mixed um, usage here, that there was actually a locust invasion. And then Joel said, you know, that, the Lord ministering into my heart, that reminds me of a day that is coming when there will actually be an invasion of human beings that will enter into the land. So I sort of hold, if you will, this hybrid of an idea, this plague of locusts. So that's where I'm going, okay? That it's going to be a plague of locusts. You all with me? All right, but if you want to think of it as people, it will be people. There you go. It, one way or another, people are going to enter into uh, the land. And those locusts, if they are indeed locusts, they are going to completely destroy the land's fields. We'll read this. It's trees. It's vines. There's on record that they could even destroy buildings if those buildings are made of wood and things like that. There's on record historically of locusts being able to destroy metal objects. I find that crazy. I can't destroy a metal object if I try. Um, But there's this tangible picture now of a traumatic event that has hit the nation of Israel. And Joel says, hey, everyone, take look out there and now listen to me. He's going to draw their attention uh, to these things. All right, let's begin. Starting in, we read verse 1, we'll read it again. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Now, Joel's going to call out four groups of people in chapter 1. The first group of people that he's going to call out, we just looked at, are the elders. And, and by that, what he means is the older people of society. 70, 80, 90, you've been around, you've seen a lot of things. You can connect this event with other events that have passed. That's the first group he's going to talk about. We'll come back to it. The second group will be down in verse 5, and it's the drunkards. And he'll say, and listen here, drunkards. The third group will be in verse 11, which are the farmers. And then the final group, or the tillers of the soil, the final group are going to be the priest. And then he's going to call all four of those groups to the same thing in chapter 2. All right, so he's going to address four different groups of people. The first group that I said are the elders, the old people of the land. And he says essentially this. He says, look, you guys, you're 70 years old, you're 80 years old, some of you are in your 90s, you've been around, you've seen some things, you have uh, the, the ability with with that time to have perspective on certain things. And he says to them, do any of you remember an event as cataclysmic as this event of these locusts coming in and destroying? And the implied answer, as he's going to go on from there, is that they would say something like, no, never. There's never been anything like this in our particular day. And it's the severity of this locust plague. It is such that the elders would say, no, we can't remember anything like this. And Joel then will go on in the next verse, verse 3, he says, tell your children of it. He essentially says, well, then go out and testify to that fact. Testify to the fact that there has never been a time in Israel's history, at least in our lifetime, where the land has been destroyed like this. He says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children of it, the grandchildren, and their children to another generation. So the great-grandchildren, tell them all. And again, in Joel's mind, this is an event unlike any others in the nation's history. Now he goes on to describe it. Look at verse 4, starting there. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. What a bad day. 
Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land. Now, this is why some people think it's a people, like a nation of people. That's what it says. Oh, he's making an analogy here. But if you keep reading, I still think we're talking, it's a nation of locusts, if you want to think of it that way. Whatever. Moving on. He says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. That means all the bark has been peeled off of it. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Because the grain uh, is destroyed and the wine dries up and the oil languishes, the olive oil. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest field of, uh, of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children uh, of man. And so he's, he describes what these locusts did. Now, he, he introduces us and describes the impact of four different kinds of locusts back in verse 4. A cutting locust, a swarming locust, a hopping locust, and then ultimately a destroying locust. Uh, now, some think this is four successive locusts. There's different types of locusts. Did you know that? I did not know it. There's 90 different types of locusts uh, that are out there. Who would have thought? Um, not me. Uh, And so some people think that this is just different types of locusts that are coming in one after the other. There is also four stages of growth in the life of a locust. Did you know that? I didn't know that either. Uh, And it advances from larvae to full maturity in about two weeks' time. All right, from larvae to full maturity in a period of about two weeks' time. One way or another... These creatures, they swarm into the region. Either it's, you know, different ones coming one after the other, or it's they're growing through this process here. And they leave behind them complete and total destruction. Now, quite honestly, as an American, and maybe a naive American that I happen to be, uh, I have a little bit, did this really happen? Because I don't see this. It doesn't happen in Ewing, New Jersey. Uh, or, or things like that. It hasn't happened in my history. I, I asked my dad, you know, it didn't happen in his history and things like that. And we don't see things like this. And so some of us may kind of doubt, like, I don't know if this really happened here. Uh, and praise the Lord. I don't want it to happen here. I don't want locusts. I don't want bugs. I don't want mice to make their way through here. I don't want anything like this. Reptiles, I don't like them either. Um, but there was a time, and there, there are times when these things, recently there was a locust invasion in Mecca. You know, Mecca is where a lot of the Muslims go to worship and things like that. And there was this large crowd of people worshiping at Mecca, and a locust invasion came in there. And the people were like, it's the end of the world, you know, because they tie religion with locusts and bugs and, and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't the end of the world. It was just, it happened. There was a commentary, commentator I read this week. His name is James Montgomery Boyce. I've told you about him, and I, I do enjoy his commentary on the Minor Prophets. It's very, very good. Um, and he wrote... Of a he, he quoted from National Geographic 1915. Now, some of you were alive in 1915. Uh, I, I won't call you out here, uh, but you may recall. Uh, and he wrote of, um, he 
quoted in his commentary from that 1915 National Geographic article. And I'm going to read. It's a little bit extensive. It's about 72 pages. You'll sit back. Uh, He says this. He says, in 1915, a plague of locusts covered Palestine and Syria. Palestine, remember, being the name that was of Israel for a period of time. And Syria, from the border of Egypt to the Taurus Mountains. The swarms first appeared in March. These were adult locusts that came from the northeast, and they moved toward the southwest in clouds. So they moved from northern Israel down toward Egypt uh, in clouds so thick that they obscured the sun. So thick they obscured the sun. Tuck that away. The females were about two and a half to three inches long, and they immediately began to lay eggs by digging holes in the soil about four inches deep and depositing about 100 eggs in each hole. Okay? The eggs were neatly arranged. And that's interesting, too. Um, that's all. Uh, in a cylindrical mass about one inch long, about as thick as a pencil or your, your finger or, or a pencil like that. So a hole goes down about four deeps, about 100 eggs in each one of those. These holes were everywhere. Remember, this was written in 1915, December issue of National Geographic. They asked people that were there. These holes were everywhere. Witnesses estimated that as many as 65,000 to 75,000 eggs were concentrated in a single square meter of soil, and that patches like this covered the entire land from north to south. Having laid their eggs, the locusts flew away. They just come in and deposit their eggs, and then they move on. Okay, but it's not over. Because within a few weeks, the young locusts hatch, and they resembled large ants. They had, yeah, they had no wings, and within a few days, they began to move forward, hopping along the ground like fleas. They would cover four to 600 feet a day, devouring any vegetation that was before them. Now, by the end of May, now, does anyone remember when this started? March, December. I never said December, Robin. <laughs> by the end of May... They had molted in this stage. They had wings, but they still didn't fly. Instead, they moved forward by walking and jumping only when they were frightened, like the humans uh, were frightened. They were bright yellow. Finally, the locusts molted a final time, this time becoming the fully developed adults that had initially invaded the land. All right, now, the source... This is a fellow by the name of John Whiting, as I said, uh, National Geographic, 1915. He went on, specific, these are John Whiting's words. He says, once entering a vineyard, the sprawling vines would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. Remember the white that we talked about? When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which after exposure to the sun became bleached snow white. Then seemingly out of malice the locust would gnaw off the small limbs, perhaps, to get at the pith within. I don't even know what pith is. Um, but these guys are angry, these locusts here. And they're just destroying, he says, seemingly out of malice. And he goes in and he describes a little bit more. But notice, it starts in March, it ends in May. Within two months, the land had been, become completely desolate because of these bugs that had made their way, or insects. Is that the same thing? I don't know. Whatever. If I'm wrong, forgive me. Alrighty, I paid more attention to history class than science. Um, but that's exactly what Joel and the people of his day were experiencing. So many of those similarities that you read from that geographic article are terms or phrases or ideas that Joel tried to, tried to put into his writing there. 
And this much-dreaded plague had cut off the nation from all sources of food supply. And it left behind in the nation this appalling scene of desolation, like a bomb had gone off or something, and it was just all destroyed relatively like that, the snap of a finger, two months or so, where every source of food and almost every source of drink was cut off um, from them. Verse 5, Joel goes on now. He says, and and again, in verse 4, that's what he's saying to the elders. Have you ever seen anything like this before? And their answer, again, implied is no. Verse 5, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now he transitions to a new group of people, and he calls the drunkards. Because, you know, perhaps others might, whatever, you know, these things happen, or we'll just move somewhere else here. But for the drunkards, they're going to immediately recognize there's a problem. Because every one source of their drink, the vineyards, has now been destroyed. And that addiction that has drawn them to that alcohol is now going to be gone. And so they're going to be stirred up rather quickly about the problem. He goes on in verse 6. He says, a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has fangs of a lioness. Its waist, uh, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree, stripping off the bark. Now look at verse 8 because here's where he makes this connection in verse 8, he essentially says these words. Let me put it into what I might say. He says, take these things to heart. He says, you know, look out your window, stop, and consider what is going on here. More specifically, verse 8, he says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers, excuse me, of the Lord the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, and the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Now, a virgin, a virgin wearing sackcloth for her bridegroom refers to a young woman mourning the untimely death of her new husband. Right? So the virgin there is the young, uh, the young woman wearing sackcloth is a period of mourning. Her bridegroom is her new husband. And so here is this woman uh, mourning the death of her... Um, not fiance, but of her new husband there, the, you know, the honeymoon stage and all that kind of stuff. And Joel there, he says, lament. Lament means to weep. It means to mourn. It means to wail. A lot of us don't do that. When we mourn, we kind of, you know, just go off on the side. But it means to cry out uh, in mourning and in weeping. Joel says, lament. And again, why? Is it because the drunkards can't get drunk today? Is that what Joel is saying? Everyone lets lament over this? Well, I think we would all yell out, of course it's not that. He tells them to weep and to to wail and to mourn because the fields have been destroyed and with them any ability to offer a grain offering or a drink offering. And he points that out there in in verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering, they're cut off from the house of the Lord. This is why they should be weeping and wailing and and mourning. Because the invasion of insects, it has impacted their nation in just about every way possible, including spiritually. Because gone now that the fields were destroyed was the prescribed means whereby they could worship the Lord. And most of us here, we're familiar with the Old Testament. We understand the different prescribed means that the Jewish people were to come to their tabernacle, come to the temple a little bit later on to worship the Lord. They were to bring their animal sacrifices. They were to bring their grain sacrifices. They were to offer the drink offering. I'll I'll remind some of you. If you've been with us on Wednesdays, we've been making our way through the writings of Moses. 
And so we just recently finished up uh, the book of Leviticus. If you've read it lately, you perhaps remember as well, even if you haven't attended with us. But in Leviticus chapter 2 are the instructions for the bringing of the grain offering. Well, that can't happen anymore because there is no grain. Numbers chapter 15 give us instructions about the drink offering. That can't happen any longer because the vines are destroyed. And with no fields, no ability to feed the cattle, meaning before long, there's going to be no cattle as well. Now that impacts Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. Leviticus 3, the peace offering. Leviticus 4, the sin offering. And Leviticus 5, the trespass offering. What it means is it impacts every form uh, that you would bring an offering to the Lord. You're no longer able to bring in that Old Testament system there. And so Joel goes from there, verse 11, he introduces us to a third group of people, the tillers of the soil and the vine dressers. So these would be our farmers. And Joel says to this third group of people, he says, be ashamed. Be ashamed, O tillers. Be ashamed, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest field has perished and the vine has dried up. Now, if you've ever done any kind of planting, or for me, it's cutting the lawn. That's the closest I come to farming. Uh, But you cut the lawn, and, you know, you put your mulch down, and you've got your flowers where they're going to be, and you just sort of pull back, and you sit down, and you look, and you're like, look at that job. I cut the grass, like, at different places or whatever, and I bring my wife. We drive by it. Take a look at that grass I cut. And she's like, are you for real? And and she's nice. She's like, "That's, that's nice. That's really good. You know, you did a good job. But there's this pride. You know, and, and a farmer similarly would have a pride. We worked hard all day. I was out here in March, and we were tilling this ground, and we put the seed, and I watched the weeds, and I applied what I needed to apply. And here I am now, and it's September, and I look out over my fields, and a pride fills at the work that I've done. He says here, O farmers, tillers of the ground, be ashamed. Because all of that work you did, you come out now, and it's gone. There's nothing there. And there's nothing to be proud of, nothing to look at and say, I did a job and I did it well done. He goes on in verse 13 and he talks to the priest. He speaks to the priest. Final grouping of people, he says to them, put on sackcloth sackcloth, and lament. Now, what they would literally do, much like the virgin, they would put on an item, a garment. It was almost like a burlap bag of sorts, like when you you have a... uh, those contests, what are they called, a potato sack race or whatever, that, that's not very comfortable. And, and you would put that on and there'd be sort of a, this period of mourning. People would know you were in mourning. Other place it talks about sackcloth and ashes. You would literally put dust or ashes on your head, let it fall down over your body. You wouldn't be clean. You'd be in a period of mourning. That's what he says to these guys. The priest, he says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. And then he gives them further instructions. I'll read it. I don't think we did yet. He says, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Instructions, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. There's that term. Excuse me, there's that term. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's nowhere to, no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep who will eat anything, even they 
suffer. And so Joel now addressing this last group of people, the priests, he calls them to weep and mourn. He says, pass the night doing so. And then to give instructions to consecrate a fast and call together a solemn assembly, which we see in verse 14. And this would be similar, if you will, to, and we've had it many times in our nation's history, where our president will put out a call for a national day of prayer or a national day of prayer and mourning and fasting. And and this is what Joel is instructed to do. Consecrate that fast for the nation. Call together a solemn assembly where people will gather. Now, why? I think that's a good question. I, I brought it up. I think it's a good question for us to ask is why call a day of national fasting and prayer when all we're really dealing with is a, a bug infection, this natural you know, event, you know, all right, so the locust came in and they destroyed it. Why connect the two? Why connect these bugs coming in with some, this big church event? Because the invasion of the land is not some coincidental thing that occurred, Joel's going to point out. But in actuality, rather than it being some random unfortunate event, this was truly as insurance agents like to say, this was an act of God, and you're not covered for it. You know, is what they like, you're killing me, you know, or whatever. And so this was an act of God. Notice verse 15. It's called the day of the Lord. It's not called the day of the locust. It says also in verse 15 that it's, the destruction is from the Almighty. It says destruction from the Almighty has come. And Joel interprets the situation and calls men to recognize the real meaning of the calamities in the midst of w- in which they were living, the things they could look right out the side of their window and see. He says, you need to understand the real meaning of what's going on here. And he draws their attention to the day of the Lord. Now remember, I defined the day of the Lord, John Walver did, as any period of time in which God directly deals with the human situation either through judgment or mercy. And according to Joel, that's what God is doing. He's directly intervening in the events of men, that the coming of locusts was no accident, that these didn't just randomly come in. They came in in rank. They came in in order. They had instructions, and they were used to accomplish the purposes of God. The most important thing Joel does in this book of of handling this disaster as he talks to the people of Israel and Judah there is he sees that God is involved with it and, if you will, even responsible for it. Now, I I don't want to say that every natural disaster that occurs, some tsunami, some earthquake, some this, some that, that occurs, that every natural disaster is from the Lord as a specific means of bringing judgment upon upon the people that are impacted by that. But at the very, very least, every one of those events should cause a person and a people to look to the Lord. And that is what Joel does here. That's what he's instructing the people to do in verses 13 through 15. He says, use this as an event for you to honestly take inventory of your life, to stop and to really consider where your life is going, where we as a nation of people are going. And with that, Joel's going to describe in detail the day of the Lord. In 16 again, he says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? And with a joy and sadness have gone. He said, The seed shrivels under the dirt, under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. We don't have extra. We don't even have enough for the basics, let alone putting some away for later. And thus those granaries are torn down. He says, The beasts of the fields groan. 
because they can't go out in the field and eat the grass or what have you. Destruction has come upon all for which they have labored. But as serious as that temporal condition is, Joel essentially says this, this pales in comparison to what will come upon the nation of Israel and the world. And it pales in comparison to the spiritual dearth, if you will, emptiness that the, the nation of Israel has in Joel's day. And he draws their attention to that. And as we get further in the book, we'll, we'll get a little more into this day of the Lord. The, the second half of the book really digs into it. But essentially, this day of the Lord, this day of the locusts, I should say, is sent in advance of the warning to warn the people of the judgment that's coming. Is that a standard, uh, or did you download that one? That's a good one. All right. Now, some will object to this idea. You know, I'm not comfortable with this idea that, that God would allow this natural disaster in this particular way. It doesn't seem fair. Some will say, you know, why should disaster like this come upon us? Why would God strike such innocent people? I think all of those are really the wrong question, quite honestly. I think we want to be sensitive and, and kind to people as we interact with them, certainly so. But the reality is this. This is the reality. And I, th- I think most of us in our heart of hearts, we know this to be the case. Why haven't these disasters come on sin more frequently? And nobody is innocent. And we all deserve judgment. And humanity's problem is that we've forgotten how sinful we actually are. That we have forgotten that it generally takes, and, and it generally takes a disaster of some unparalleled proportion to really just shake us to get our attention, to seek the Lord again in a fresh way and to realize, you know what, Lord, I've gotten off track and I've been distracted. And Joel exhorts the people to do that. He says, look, wake up from your lethargy. You've gotten comfortable. Times are relatively good and relatively stable. And you've allowed yourself to get involved in things that you would have never gotten involved in before. Joel says to them, wake up. And he closes the chapter, chapter 1, with a prayer. Uh, Again, we don't know much about Joel. Maybe Joel was a priest. And so maybe Joel prayed prayers like this before. But Joel essentially has the words. He says, pray these words to the others. Or he gives them a sample. Verse 19, he says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. He prays to the Lord there, leads the people in prayer. Look at chapter 2. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord, second time, is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of generations. Now, again, from our Wednesday night study, we recently learned in the book of Numbers, maybe you've read about it, that the Jewish people were instructed to have two silver trumpets. And those two silver trumpets, this is when they were camping in the wilderness and they were moving, coming out of Egypt, moving into the promised land. And those silver trumpets were to be designed, and they were to be blown, and they would be blown in sort of different uh, tones and things like that. And that meant something different. And it's all explained in Numbers chapter something. Numbers chapter 10 is where it's explained. And you can go back and you can look at it. Here we see the trumpet's going to be blown twice. 
here in Joel chapter 2. The first time is here in verse 1. Second time, I believe, is in verse 15. Maybe it's verse 14. And it, it accomplishes the two purposes of the silver trumpets. The first one here that we have is to blow an alarm, that the enemy is coming. Let's get everyone's attention. The second time that it is blown, perhaps again with a different you know, tune there, is to call the people together for a solemn assembly, to call them for church, to ring the bells, if you will. And if you look, that's what's going on here in Joel chapter 2. This first one, it even says it, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Again, the book of Joel is addressed to the southern tribe. The southern tribe is Judah. And one of the major cities or the major city in, those, in the southern kingdom is the city of Jerusalem, also called the city of Zion, which it says there. So this is addressed to the people of Jer- Jerusalem there. He says, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is near." Then there seems to me to be this apparent shift in imagery moving from the locust invading the land to what's about to come on the land. And in chapter 2, we have this description of the invading armies that are going to begin to make their way into the land and the destruction that they're going to bring. Joel, this is the bridge chapter from chapter 1 to chapter 3, from the locust destroying the land to what the great and terrible day of the Lord is sometime, someday in, a, in the future going to be. And so again, Joel says to call it. Now look at, verse, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Hear this, you elders, give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened... In your days. See how that's past tense? Happened. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says there, the day of the Lord is coming and it is near. That's future. And so chapter 1, the literal event, in my opinion, of the locust invasion. Chapter 2, speaking of a future invasion of human beings as part of the great and terrible day of the Lord. A far worse destruction going to come upon the land here. I think historically, you can look and you can look at the Babylonian captivity that came and attacked the southern kingdom and say, well, that's at least a partial fulfillment of what Joel saw, but there's still a day yet future. Continuing, let me read from verse 4. I read it, right? The first few verses of Joel 2? No, maybe, I forget. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom. I didn't read this. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, nothing escaping them. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. And with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
again, before the invaders, like the Garden of Eden. After they are in there, they leave it like a desolate wilderness. In verse 3, with nothing escaping them. And as the locusts destroyed everything in the path, so too does this enemy army, if that's indeed what we have transitioned into. And listen, listen to some of the words Job uses. I know I just read it, but listen to some of these. In verse 2, he says darkness, gloom, blackness, he says there. Verse 3, he talks about firing, fire devouring before them, leaving behind a desolate wilderness. Look at verse 6. This affects people here. It says that the peoples are in anguish and all of their faces grow pale. You know, all the color. I don't know if anything has ever caused you to essentially almost pass out where all the color leaves your face. Well, the terror of these invading armies causes that to occur here. The people are essentially terrified and they realize they're helpless. And so all of the color leaves their face. Verse 7 describing the enemy army, he describes them as this well-oiled machine. And so he begins in verse 7 saying that they march in swiftly, like warriors, he says, they charge. They scale the walls. They're completely unhindered by any forms of resistance. You put a wall there, I'll climb it. You put a window there, I'll make my way, I'll get into it, or whatever. And we see there that they acquire every... um, facet of the city. They conquer every part of it. And we know, again, the city is Jerusalem because verse 1 tells us that. And so it says they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows. But this is not just some invading army of an enemy nation that is coming against God's people, as the locusts were. But this is the Lord's doing. As hard as it is for us to consider that and imagine that, the Lord is either, use whatever word you want, he's either allowing it, using it, or causing it. But one way or another, it's accomplishing his, his purposes. His purposes. I'm Italian all of a sudden. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. He's accomplishing his purposes with these people. Even though they're not the Jewish people, they're going to accomplish his purpose, his purposes. If you look at verse 10, it's clear that this is more than just some human invading army attack. Look at again 10, because in conjunction with the invasion of the human army, we have the earth quaking, the heavens trembling, and the sun, the moon, and the stars all being darkened, which are all repeated descriptions throughout the Bible that are used to describe the condition of things in the world during, I'll use the phrase one more time, the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is also called the Great Tribulation, which in Jeremiah chapter 30 is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Let me give you some uh, prophecies or what the prophets wrote. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah described it this way. He says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The prophet Zephaniah. Did you know there was a prophet Zephaniah? You will when we get to it, but most of us didn't. He says this, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and, ba- and battle cry against the fortified cities and the lofty battlements. Not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter said this. 
He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done by it will be exposed. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the suddenness of these things, said this, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of of the heavens will be shaken. And so all throughout the Bible, this is how the great and terrible day of the Lord is described. That's what we're talking about, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And the Lord has used the occasion of this locust invasion to wipe out the land for Joel to be able to point to it and say, you see this, everyone? There's a day that is coming that will be even more severe than this day. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19, that's, what, 14 chapters or so, goes into great detail of that great and terrible day of the Lord, of the great tribulation. And those are the events recorded there of the seven seals. You heard of that, the seven seals being broken? Not animals, seals on like a scroll. Seven seals being broken, the seven trumpets being blown, the seven bowls being poured out. The great and terrible day of the Lord, the great tribulation, these are the days in which the Antichrist will come, in which the application of the mark of the beast will occur, the rebuilding of God's temple, and then the defilement of that temple. When 100-pound hailstorms will fall, we read about in Revelations chapter 6 through chapter 19, where various pestilences and plagues will affect the earth, where war will be over the face of the earth, where famine will be over the face of the earth, and where death where death will be over the face of the earth. Indeed, look at Joel 2.31. Now, if you're not reading the King James Version, it may not say it exactly like this, and so we'll put it up on the screen, I believe. But in Joel 2.31 in the King James Version, it says that the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord has come. And it is going to be a day of terrible judgment that is coming And as Peter would write in the New Testament, that judgment must first begin in the household of God. And so it is a day of great and terrible judgment coming upon God's people, the Jewish people in Israel. But I want you to notice this. That would be a horrible place to end, wouldn't it? And I want you to notice, look at verse 12, uh, back in Joel chapter 2. It says there in verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That should certainly be highlighted in your Bibles if you haven't done so or circled. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not just your garments. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent or repent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Despite this judgment is coming and it is coming for sure and it far surpasses anything that you can imagine, anything that the old people say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's far beyond that. Joel adds these words. He says, even now, even now the Lord is calling the people to repentance. 
Essentially, he's saying this. Look, it does not, it's coming, but it doesn't need to come upon you. And that's an amazing truth of the Scripture. Judgment is coming on the earth and eternally, but it does not need to happen to any one of us that are in this room. The Lord has made a way. He says essentially here, he says to them, look, it's not too late for you to return to me. And again, that's what he says to each one of us in this room. The Lord will forgive the person that truly repents and comes to him as he has instructed them. Our sermon two weeks ago, when I was teaching two weeks ago, was entitled uh, How to Repent. And Joel tells us, or excuse me, Hosea tells us that in Hosea chapter 14. The scripture says the Lord will forgive the person that truly repents and comes to him. Look at a few things here as we close. He says in verse 12, return to me with all your heart. And then he goes also to say, come to me with weeping and fasting and mourning. But then he adds, but don't just come to me with some outward expression, some outward exercise. He says, truly rend your hearts, not just your garments. And then Joel interjects and he says, look, you do that. And on the basis of the character and the nature of God, he will hear you. And as he says in verse 13, he will relent over disaster. Because what's the character and nature of God? God is merciful. God is gracious. God's slow to anger. These are all things that are found right there in the passage. And he abounds in steadfast love. And as Peter would say in the New Testament, his desire is that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's God's desire, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And calling the people to real repentance here so that the Lord might relent and spare them of coming judgment and instead pour out his grace and his mercy. Look at verse 15 in chapter 2. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Second time the trumpet, this time for a solemn assembly. He says, consecrate a fast, call an assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, have them come. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, their honeymoon suite, bang on that door, pull that little sign off the door, get them out there, get everybody out here between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priest, the minister of the Lord, ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? The second blast, a solemn assembly, gather all the people. And notice the totality of the call. He talks about old people, young people. We might use phrases like rich people, poor people, happy people, sad people, like the happy people of the the bridegroom chamber there. He says all might come to the Lord, seeking him with a rent heart, a torn heart, God, speak to the deepest places of my heart and cry out to him for mercy. And he says, and all who do that will come to experience that mercy. That's great news, isn't it? And what's exciting about it is this. Maybe God's done that work in our hearts here. Maybe everyone, I hope he has. And there's more than likely there's some where we haven't quite yet been impacted by the, the grace and the love and the mercy of God and come to his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. But many of us in this room have. And we can think of those outside of this room, outside of the walls of a church somewhere, that need Jesus Christ. They need the forgiveness of their sin. They need to be cleansed so that they might be able to walk in righteousness, that they're destroying their lives. And we can think of them, we can picture them, 
We have them in our hearts and in our minds right now. Here's the good thing about this thing that, that, that really jazzes me up here. I never used that phrase before, but that's what it does. It gets me excited here is I can confidently and you can confidently go to any person on the face of the earth, no matter how evil and bad they may be or how good and wonderful they may seem, bring this message of hope and it will impact their lives. It can impact their lives, and they can be changed forever by the grace of God. There is no one outside of the grace of God, too far away. Uh, God can never impact them. That's great news. And that's why we can confidently go forth as missionaries to our places of work, to our neighborhoods, to the uttermost part of the earth, because we know that this is a true message. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Amen? Amen. Look, if you haven't done that, you need to do it. You need to call on the name of the Lord. You need to recognize your need to be saved. Your sin, and you're like, well, you know me. Look, because you're like me. My sin separated me from Christ, from God. And it would have done so for all eternity had I not come to, as the Lord brought me, to the place of forgiveness. The place of forgiveness is Calvary, not this building. It's the the place where Jesus Christ was crucified. Because Jesus Christ, he said, look, if there's any other way whereby I can take away the sins of the world, let's do that, Father. Jesus Christ was crucified on a hill called Calvary. There was no other way. And that's the place where our sin could be dealt with. And if you have never dealt with your sin, you need to go to Calvary. You need to, in your mind's eye, go to the foot of a cross where Jesus Christ is being crucified and recognize that he's taking your sin so that you wouldn't have to be judged for your sin. And the scripture says you do that, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Amen. Bring that message to those that need to hear it, if you already know that for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for that great truth. Lord, we thank you for the book of Joel. And the things that we see in it, Lord, we know that there is a great and terrible day. Lord, we wish it were not so. We know when there is a day coming when you will directly intervene in the affairs of men where sin will be judged and put out and where where righteousness will reign upon the earth in that thousand-year glorious period, the millennium. And Lord, even as our hearts long for home, for heaven, there's a longing in our hearts when sin, when sin will be put aside. And yet we know there's a tribulation that comes before it. And so, Lord, our hearts are moved. Lord, we do care about those that don't yet know you. Lord, if we believe the Scripture, we know these things are going to come upon many. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us an unction, just that we would be convinced of the truth of these things and that they would pour forth out of our hearts, Lord, as you break our hearts for others. And we we would be your witnesses in the earth. Father, we pray for any with us in this room now that don't yet know Christ. Lord, would you enter in, directly intervene into their heart, turn on that light that they see their need and that Christ alone can meet it, and bring salvation to this room this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com 
or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.